0: Men and women are just being pushed to the brink for the sake of geopolitics, and and people who, after four or five decades of war, just want to put a bit of peace and stability in their country.
1: Listen, uh, uh, Ellen, thank you very much for joining me. Um, uh, I'm the head of the School of Journalism here at Inua Galway and I, I'm working uh, on a project with your partner organization IOM at the moment on on migration so that's my idea oh, wow. for the next year and a half we're, we're working on um, education literacy for for journalism schools in um the Philippines in, in Morocco and Mexico and Serbia and Nigeria and Somalia so um something that's slightly relevant to you given where you're based right now is that we're also working with the an Organization called IMS uh to bring a bunch of Afghani journalists to Ireland. They're hoping to run a, a diaspora newspaper for the for, for Afghani um, diaspora. They're getting Irish visas, expedited Irish visas.
0: Okay, great. Good, good on Ireland. Um, because I guess it's... but there's thirty-eight million more left here, uh, or 40 million
1: on Saturday. Yeah, I, it's a it's a it's a it's a big job. And can I maybe just start with the with a obvious question? an arts degree from NUI Galway um what did it prepare you for
0: uh well i suppose i had an arts degree in an llb (laughs) as well uh and then went back and done my llm what a couple of years ago just um what yeah well i suppose the the arts was in law and economics right so it was a natural progression then to do the llb to either to get into practice in ireland um was really where i was kind of going first um and then I took a year out. Just basically, it was shortly after the Rwandan genocide uh, to go out just for a year with Goal, and I, I never went back. <laughs> so it's just um, it was one of those. It was kind of work. I you know I I I, I mean an old neighbour of my uh, an old neighbour of ours at home told me that I'd said when I was eight or nine I was going to go abroad anyway to work. Right, that I was I was going to head out to. To africa right but of course i didn't remember it then but she remembered it and then i fell into in, into work that that you know i was pretty good at and i loved and, and and stayed at it and that was what 1995 and here we are 2021 and i'm in afghanistan
1: you mentioned there the the, uh, the lm that you did with the irish yeah. center for human rights that was i think in 2018 2019 i yeah. just have it from yeah. your from your profile and um, what was the i suppose what, what was the drawback to Galway after after more than twenty years i mean obviously you you're a graduate of your you must have had a good experience given you came back from war
0: yeah well I think i was I was moving up um, the leadership ranks I- I- in wFp right and, and and as you move up in the leadership you know it becomes broader than wFp you become part of the humanitarian leadership in a country right and you know and, and the issues that we were dealing with as a humanitarian country team around protection, around IHL, uh, you know, around conflict um, and, and issues like that. And I felt I really wanted to, to broaden my knowledge a bit more in that, because that's that's where I had I had I had reached, right? And any countries I was going to be working in, uh, whether as a WFP representative, which I am today, or moving on to the next step, which has been a humanitarian coordinator. Or um, you know what I mean, or a resident coordinator for the broader system uh, required required that more in depth knowledge. So uh, and then when I researched it, I think the Irish Centre for Human Rights um, really had come out on top in terms of of the issues that they were they they were looking at, which was yeah. And of course then I, I had a good old affinity from for Ballway as well, being for from Donegal and everything else. So it was all. And it gave me a chance to be at home for a year as well, which was
1: great. And uh, no, no regrets about coming back to Galway.
0: No, no regrets. Um, no, not none at all. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it was quite um, interesting to to discuss in class some of the issues that I have been on the front lines for. Right, particularly as we watched, um, because I think that body of law. And everything has really only evolved since the late 80s um into the 90s so it was quite interesting being in a in a class with some youngsters and you suddenly tell them yeah you were there and you were in rwanda you were you know (laughs) it was in 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 that respect no 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 regrets no regrets at all no no thoroughly enjoyed it eh?
1: and i want to obviously talk about your current role but i mean you've got a a hugely impressive and amazing CV. And you mentioned Rwanda there, which was, I think, as you said, one of your first overseas postings before your days in the UN. Um, what was that like? Um, I mean, obviously a very difficult time for you personally, um, your first time overseas, but, you know, huge, hugely challenging I would have thought. Yeah, I mean,
0: it's, yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, it, it, it was, um, a massive a, a, a massive shock as suppose, well to the emotions initially right because i guess you know um despite coming from the proximity of northern ireland and that would have been the generation i would have been brought up in, right um to see to see that sort of level of violence and stuff on mass uh, was quite a jolt um i think also what really struck me is because my father god rest him used to be um uh, a stonemason made t- tombstones, right? But to come um, to a place where you were just, you know, because you know the Irish Army were were hugely involved in um, the the cholera cholera response and the, the that, and you know, and come across like mass graves and stuff. Like for for me as a youngster growing up in Donegal, where where we had such um, uh, particularly on marking people's place of final rest and everything. I think that for me was a massive, massive culture shock and, uh, and an emotional shock on how how really cheap life can be, right, um, in terms of, you, you know, I mean, and a very up, upfront and in your face and, and, you know, on that scale, the scale of death, right, uh, uh, and the scale of hatred. It probably also kind of made me cop on a little bit to, to the issues in Ireland a lot more around, around um, Northern Ireland, thinking, you know, what, what were we, you know, given where we were from and what kind of a life we had, um, you know, we should have been probably sooner to the table for reconciliation, I think, right, because I saw a whole different level, a whole different level of violence and and, and hatred, which I think we, which is, which I've seen now throughout my career, and I'm, I'm sitting in a country today where I see a different kind of war going on, which is also, you know, just the injustice of it and just the, the scale of it, right? So, and then I guess the other thing we didn't have in the days when I started, we didn't have the internet and Skype and Zoom and everything else, right? And you got you got $50 a month to ring home. Uh, and Donegal was a long, long way away for on seven minutes of the telephone. But yeah, um, yeah, it was um it was yeah you always remember your first one, right, and how you felt those those- first couple of weeks in terms of 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 moving into that work and the different experiences and and just yeah dealing with um trying to process uh what it was like for the people we were faced with every day, you know thousands and thousands of orphans who had lost their families, you know many families torn apart by the by by the violence, yeah.
1: And you, you know, since then you've 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 worked in Sudan, uh, Chad, and in the other places, and and now you're in a what many would consider a very difficult posting in Afghanistan. Um, is do you go here by choice, or is this something you're you're asked to do, or how does that happen?
0: Um, a lot of them, yeah. I mean, I suppose most of the other ones, I'd throw in my hat in the ring. I, I suppose I have to say Afghanistan was one I was I was avoiding because of because of the reputation of Afghanistan and the security associated with it. And it's one of those you don't because you also have to think of what you're putting your family through. Uh, but at the end of the day, I got asked, would I come to Afghanistan and lead the operation in Afghanistan? And suppose it's a challenge I've stepped, you know, I decided to take on. Um, and, you know, and despite all that's happened here, I, I, I don't I don't think I regret it um it's it's certainly been a it's been a bumpy year since i got here last year
1: of course you got there in in uh i think it was october um yeah you, could, you couldn't have known what, what what was going to happen six months later um could could you maybe give a, a paint a picture for us of of you know what it was like to live through the last year in afghanistan
0: yeah i, I mean I remember thinking about when I was coming in October last year, thinking, well, it's, it wasn't going to be easy because we had seen after the Doha, the Doha agreement, the, the, the agreement that was signed in Doha, a massive uptick in the conf- conflict across the country, and that, I mean, it was raging, right? So it was really about, oh well, my goodness, how are we going to navigate this, right? Because we still have to get out and reach people on a daily basis. So trying to navigate the security challenges, the open conflict, and then also watching the politics, where was it going to go, right? I mean, how are they going to get around the table and how are they going to resolve that? I I think then what we saw starting in sort of May, June last year, I I mean, of course, we watched the the international politics around it, the different statements. But then, you know, watching what we saw from May, June, July onwards and see how... You know, provincial cities collapsed, and how different provinces and districts came under the control of the Taliban uh, right up to to the 15th of August. And I, I would tell you, I'm still stunned here on a daily basis. A lot of the commentary around it last year, there was hope that the provincial capitals would certainly be able to hold out. You know, um, I suppose we were we were worried that there would be a lot of urban warfare in battles in places like Herat, Mazar, Kabul, that there would be battle. But there wasn't. I mean, there wasn't a shot fired coming in in into Kabul. So it's been, I mean, I, I suppose the last four months have, have been more emotionally difficult than the eight months up to it. Um, there are some days I wish I hadn't been here before the 15th of August, because now when you deal with people on a daily basis and listen to the hopes, and the aspirations and the dreams that have been wrenched away from people, you know because when you hadn't lived here and saw what it was like beforehand and now to see what it's like today is it's it's it, it's um it's it's very difficult um you know trying to process what's happened uh and then also to see how you know what's how the human- humanitarian crisis and the economic crisis is now engulfing the country, mm-hmm. which is something I think we're just um we're just stunned about you know the the real injustice of it that's happening to the people of afghanistan
1: sure and of course your your role there is, as as country director um with the united nations world food program puts you into direct contact with, with dealing with this humanitarian emergency could could you maybe talk us a little bit through what you know what is it like there for ordinary people on a on a, on a daily basis i mean are there are there, you know, food shortages? Um, where do you see this going as well? What's what's the next step here?
0: We've just watched it get worse week on week since the fifteenth of August. Um, you know, we already knew twenty twenty one was going to be a difficult year. I mean, it's the worst drought in thirty years, so they already have that to contend with. You have the massive displacement from the conflict. I mean, over six hundred thousand people lost their homes. During the first eight months of 2021 uh, and lost everything. Um, and then you also had that fragility around the security and the economy, any which anyway which were impacting. But since the 15th of August, you know, since overseas development support has been cut off, which was 75% of the budget, you know, 9 billion of foreign reserves frozen. Uh, and all the development projects, we've just had an economic meltdown, you you know what I mean? And it's just, it's echoing right across the country. So what we're seeing now, you know, we're seeing the numbers of malnourished malnourished children increase week on week. I'm meeting people who are screaming at me for food, Uh, women, you know, who have lost their jobs. I mean, and this is the thing, there's a whole lot Um, You know, the infrastructure behind the middle class, right, cleaning jobs, laundry jobs that kept people going, all that's gone. Uh, The construction sectors at a standstill. I mean, I have met, I met farmers last week who told me they've lived through 19 governments in Afghanistan, and I've never seen it as bad. Uh, They've never had to come to WFP before. And the last couple of days, in, in the last five days, we've seen the, the, the local currency depreciate by 25%, which means like the price of bread is doubling overnight. It's freezing cold here. So and the price of fuel is doubling. Um, it's absolutely desperate. And it's visible. I mean, it's not that it's hidden. It, it, it's visible now. You know, I mean, you go out and you see people's their entire household belongings on the side of the street as they try to sell them for some food. Um, you know, women that are going without food for days. As I said, children. I mean, I've met families, two or three children in the same hospital, all malnourished, their mother sitting by the bedside, you know, looking for some kind of reprieve. It's absolutely, it's absolutely desperate what's, what's going on. And it's very visible right across the country. Yeah?
1: And that's that's really shocking. And obviously, it's a political negotiation between the Taliban and the global community. But what's the solution here? What do do you need, I suppose, in the short term? But more importantly, what what does Afghanistan need to stop something worse from happening, to stop a famine, perhaps?
0: Yeah, I mean, on one hand, of course, we need the massive scale up on the humanitarian response. I mean, the humanitarian needs for Afghanistan in 2022 is $4.5 billion the biggest ever for Afghanistan, unprecedented, 2.6 billion we need is WFP. So that's one piece of it, right? And that has to be done now because people are at the brink. But on the other side, you mean at, at the level of the Security Council and at the level of international geopolitics, you know, there is the UN sanctions. Uh, there needs to be a humanitarian carve out from those sanctions that allow the humanitarian response to be able to move but there also needs—I firmly believe, you know—that there needs to be some bold and courageous uh, solutions by the international community um, that doesn't choke the Afghan people, which is what's happening at the moment. And I appreciate there's a lot of all the Taliban, you know, we can't do business with them, we can't recognise them. But there has to be there has to be some movement because, I mean, the sanctions and everything else it's the ordinary people of Afghanistan who are suffering it's not it's not the Taliban sitting in in in, in the seats of the palace that that are suffering and you know and, and they and the Taliban also have to to move forward right I mean their their posturing either is not helping the people of Afghanistan particularly when you look around you know I, I'm no I'm being more political than I should be but I mean I'm talking, I mean but I mean, when you talk about girls' education, when you talk about women's rights to work, um, you know, some of this stuff—I mean, they're you know not to lessen them; they're, they're easy wins if they move forward on them in terms of advancing the conversation with the international community. And I think you know Ireland, with the European countries who I think are are, are demonstrating some more pragmatism, need to start putting the people of the Afghanistan front and center of the geopolitics, because otherwise, you know, children are, are, are being starved and, and, you know, men and women are just being pushed to the brink for the sake of geopolitics and, and people who, after four or five decades of war, just want to put a bit of peace and stability in their country, uh, and they're paying a very high price for that now.
1: Can I ask you, as a woman, um... How difficult is it for you right now, I guess, to some extent, you're perhaps insulated because you're a diplomat and you're working for an international organization, but you obviously have female staff, you have people who work for you, local staff or women, you know, how concerned are you for, for their safety and indeed for your own safety?
0: Yeah, I I don't, I'm not really concerned for my my own safety, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, for a lot of these, for a lot of these the members of the de facto authorities, I'm probably just a thing, um, you know, when they deal with me, um, you know, my, my, I lead up a UN organization, I meet the acting ministers, I meet the governors when I'm out in the field. But what I see for the for the women, um, you know, especially, you know, our national female staff are back, but, but what I really see for the women of this country is the absolute trauma that they're going through. I've met many women who can't go to work. Uh, and you know the mental anguish they're going through my national staff a lot of them have young daughters they have teenage daughters who were at university uh, you know those dreams those hopes are gone i mean it's an it's an awful dark darkness and an awful sadness and an awful despair to descend on a country oh, after 20 years of what seemed you know it was certainly far from perfect but there was an element of lightness there was an element of hope uh, those that lived in the cities, you know, I mean the could, those who could send their kids to school had some some hope and some aspiration uh, for 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 their particularly for their young daughters to be able to make their way in life. But at the moment, the sadness and and the absolute despair and the darkness um, it, it, it's awful. And I, I think that's what gets me as as a woman leader. And I I appreciate I'm probably in a privileged position here because. I am who I am, and they have to deal with me, right? Uh, I mean, and I would love to be able to take some of my national female staff and and raise them up, but I have to be very careful about that, right? And and then and then we have as humanitarians also have to navigate uh, our dialogue as well, because I mean we have to remain impartial, neutral, you know, and have to keep the humanitarian imperative front and center. But certainly as a woman, I, I I'm struggling to understand it. That when there's such big economic issues to be addressed in this country, that that the issue of women and girls' education is what preoccupies uh, the people who who now hold the key of the house. Huh?
1: You probably won't like looking at, into crystal balls, but I mean, do, do you have a, any sense of what the next 12 months are going to be like?
0: Yeah, it's 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 it, it, at this juncture where we sit today, it's very hard to see what an opt, what a you know an optimistic. Scenario because of getting that that movement on the geopolitical side, but I, we're also watching carefully what's going on with inside the Taliban themselves. They're not a homogenous unit, uh, you know. Um, and no, no, no matter what they say, you know, the old systems of patronage and access to resources are also relevant for the Taliban structures, right? You mean they may say there is no corruption and everything else, but we see the jostling for position. Uh, we see the jostling around resources. We would be, con- I mean, would be concerned about fragmentation within their ranks. In terms of the people, I mean, if people can get across the winter um, and things are not looking to improve, uh, I, I mean, they will start moving, they will start migrating. We're already getting worrying reports that ISK are recruiting because, of course, people, when they're stuck for money, you know, I mean, if somebody's going to offer you a couple hundred dollars. So radicalization um people on the move migration uh civil unrest uh uh, certainly if, if the situation doesn't start i mean if we don't get some oxygen back in the economy um because i mean i think what you do see in a lot of these countries is you know if people can have their jobs and have their livelihoods you know politics is over there it's to the side right they they're they're not you know the you know um assuring their own basic needs is is more of a priority but certainly if people have nothing to lose then all bets are off uh. um so sorry it's not a very optimistic picture but i think it it needs some pragmatism it really needs like the international community to kind of somehow come together uh, 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 and find a way with um with the taliban and i do wonder sometimes you know what were the expectations around Doha, right? When they were talking in Doha, what they thought the end state was going to look like. Huh?
1: Could I maybe just, just move back to NUI Galway for a minute? I mean, you you sat in a room with a, a bunch of young master's students um, just a couple of years ago. Um, what would you say to somebody who's, you know, just finished an arts degree and an LLB and maybe thinking about a, a career in applying for international organizations, I mean it must be a huge re- rewarding job, but would you have any advice for them
0: um uh get your languages <laughs> learn your languages because that's the you know, they're easy to carry and 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 go for it uh be willing uh be willing to learn uh as you go along uh be willing to seek out adventure and and be willing to learn about about other people and, and other other cultures. I've never regretted it one day. You know, I mean, there's oftentimes, my mother used to tell me to come home and get a proper job, but you know, um, if I, I would do it all over again, uh, if, if I could. Um, I found it extremely rewarding, but I, you do have to, I mean, there's some of the places you go are not so nice. Uh, what, not even from a security perspective, but even from a living perspective, somewhere like South Sudan and some of the, sub offices where we work and in chad where we work are very difficult but yeah you have to be willing to take that as well as part of the as part of the learning but you know and and as part of the and 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 to be humble about it you know and keep the humility and i I think if you have a sense of social justice and that that our world can be a better place i would i would certainly tell them to, to to go for it we need um, I think our generation needs some 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 new blood coming in to try and move our world forward in a in in a in a better direction, especially what we've seen over the last 10 years, huh?
1: If you were the president of NUI Galway, and there isn't a vacancy right now, but if you were, <laughs> um how how would you prepare graduates for the challenges that we're going to face in the next two decades? What do you think we should be doing, I suppose, to better prepare our graduates here?
0: Yeah, I I noticed that was one of the great advancements when I went back a couple of years ago, was that more international looking outwards that that we have at NUI now, particularly the Human Rights School and everything else. Because I remember when I was there, I mean, what was it, the 1980s? We we hadn't been long in the European Union as a country, right? And there was a book that size on European law. I, I think it's important... To educate about things, about climate change, about conflict, the the shared humanity that we have. Uh, And I think it's a place in in universities have have to do more of that, I think, in terms of where the world is. Right. And preparing students for, you know, the the, you know, we all we're all on one planet. And if we don't address climate change um, and if we don't start getting serious about conflict, um, and how to address conflict and I know there's massive issues around the Security Council on that but the, the you know be educated I think it's educating them in the word of what's going on around them and being aware and learning and and and, and looking back to history and, and 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 trying to to change history right
1: how do you sort of insulate yourself from the day job I mean I spent some time in the Middle East once upon a time I was nothing nothing like what you're doing now but I mean, it was a difficult posting. I, I was in Beirut. Um, how how do you keep yourself, I suppose, safe mentally as well as physically?
0: Um, <clears throat> yeah, well, physically, it's, it's it's about getting a bit of exercise, right? A bit of the walking, a bit of the gym and stuff. Uh, mentally, I suppose it's reading, and I I, I suppose it's just um, yeah. And the hairy days, I guess, it's just accepting the the the, the choices and the decisions you've made. Um, for us on the security side yeah i mean i i have a big responsibility now for the security of the entire team that's part of my job and a lot of that is around i mean simple things like drills and everything else so you you know you do those kind of things that become they become second nature you do get scared i mean there's no i would be i would be telling a lie if i didn't tell you there's times I, i i do get worried you you do get scared um but you know you have to have good close friends as well, right? Everywhere you go, making a few friends, uh, understanding each other, giving each other space to have a bad day or a bad week. Um, but yeah, sometimes it's easier than others. But I guess at the moment with where I am, um, I'm probably not that good at the life work balance because we have a lot. We have a, we have a lot to do, right? But um, it's 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 kind of part of it, like you uh, life work balance kind of. Um, it, it it gets it becomes secondary and it is the world food program i i always say you know we work because other people are less well off and are really on the uh, are really in desperate situations so we owe them the best that we can do for them eh?
1: ellen that's been really really wonderful I, i'm just conscious of your time so
0: no but tom thank you very thank much you, for your time as well
1: eh? okay no, not at all thank you very much